I had a conversation with a pastor recently, months and months after COVID has come and gone for the most part. And this pastor told me that he still struggles to have his members come back to church. And one of the reasons why is because as we've talked about over and over again, COVID struck a fear in us and that fear replaced our understanding of the need for God's people to gather together. And we took our precautions and we, uh, we set our boundaries and we did what we needed to do. And now we, we can say with confidence that we've learned a lot of lessons about while COVID was making us physically ill, the absence from one another was making us emotionally and spiritually ill. And this is kind of the idea that Paul presses upon in the book of 1 Corinthians and really most of his letters, the importance of the body of Christ, the church. And it's so important for us because in our culture, in American culture, you know as well as I do that going to church can, do, can be for a lot of uh, false and pretentious reasons. Uh, I'm going because um, I want to make someone happy in my relationship. Whether it's a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a spouse, a, a, a parent, even a grandparent. You know that grandma's going to call up on Sunday afternoon, did you go to church this morning? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I went to church. You're not there because you want to be there. You're not there because you want to learn or grow or understand. You just want to make grandma happy until she goes on to be with Jesus, and then you can just go about your day. See, the truth is, is that God is so ingrained in us as human beings, a need for community and a need for one another. And that comes to reality when we come to Christ and we understand that we belong to a spiritual body, a spiritual body that needs one another. And so what we're focusing on in uh, these books or this book of 1 Corinthians is we are walking through very profound and necessary truths about the church. And one particular truth we learned last week, we will continue to think about this week, and that is the sovereign design of the body of Christ. If you're a member of Redemption Community Church, we have said, I have said, that you are sovereignly designed to be here. God has placed you here. We will see that today. It is by no accident, even if you stumbled upon this place, by accident. As my former pastor said, there are no accidents, only acts of providence. God desires for His people to assemble together. Matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 10, He says, do not forsake assembling yourselves together. Because the community of God's people is a necessary community. And a greater necessary community than any other community that you can be a part of. Your neighborhood, your sports team, your office, even your family. Because we are bound together, as we learned last week, joined together in the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. So as a review, just thinking back to our first point, which was my whole sermon last week, and that is that we are joined together by one body. And we are joined into this body 
by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, we learned last week, is the one in which we, He is the, the, the agent of baptism by which when we come to Christ, He immerses us into the body of Christ at our salvation. We talked about what the baptism of the Spirit is, how it's not some second blessing that comes to only certain people in the church, but that all believers at conversion are baptized by the Holy Spirit, which is an empowering to do the work of God in this world for His people. That's how you're going to bring glory to God. That's how you're going to live in obedience and holiness. Not because you have it in yourselves, but because the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, lives in you. Now don't be confused. You can be a member of a church and the Holy Spirit not live in you. Let me say that again. You can be a member of a church and the Holy Spirit not live in you. And the only way that can happen is you are not truly a believer. You thought maybe you were a Christian or you are just out to deceive someone and they have bought into your deception or bought into your confusion and they've included you into a local membership, but the truth is, is Christ is not your Lord. And if Christ is not your Lord and your King, He can't be your Savior, therefore you don't have the Holy Spirit and you don't truly belong to the church. It's just that clear. But when you are saved, when Christ saves you, Christ is your head, as we learned last week, being the head of this body. You cannot belong to a body without a head, and therefore if Christ is not your Lord, then you can't belong to His body. But He rules over in authority and power and majesty, not over just the entire world, but in particularly the church. And then we talked about how the formation of the body of Christ started in eternity past in the perfect plan and wisdom of God and was formed at the coming of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts chapter 2. It was formed there on earth and continues to be built upon day by day as people come to Christ and are regenerate, born again as we might say in the church into new life in Christ. And this is Paul's point in verses 12 through 14 of chapter 12. That we are joined together by one Spirit. But he furthers and, 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 and leads beyond that point to say, in that, uh, that unity of the body, where we are joined together, there's also diversity. That we are all different. And in particular, he's dealing with the diversity of the gifts that are in the church. That we all have different diversity, and particularly diversified gifts. Because when you come into the body of Christ, the Holy Spirit empowers you not only to live in holiness, but to serve the church. And in serving the church, you are gifted spiritual gifts that are to be used, not ignored that are to be used to serve the body and the world. And those gifts in particular are given to us by the Holy Spirit. And what Paul is dealing with is some contentious attitudes within the Corinthian church about those gifts. He deals with these problems, and this is some of the things that we are going to think about today. 
So as we think about being joined together by one spirit, we also must understand that God has composed the body of Christ with diverse purpose. And with that diversity comes issues because we are human beings and we all sin and we all struggle with things and there oftentimes leads into these different sinful attitudes and reflection or, or as we reflect upon our diversity. It doesn't even have to be about our gifts. It can be about our wealth. Diversity causes us to be uh, to, 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 to naturally um, display our sinful behaviors at times. And that diversity leads us to separate instead of unify. And we oftentimes divide because of diversity instead of allow our diversity to be celebrated and to remain unified as the local body of Christ. Paul deals with a couple problems in Corinth in relationship to this diversity. And as we think about this, I want us to think about it broadly as as general ideas or issues that we may face as a body of Christ. For one, one problem that he faced was a feeling of inadequacy. Inadequacy. This is what he's dealing with in verse 15 and 16. He says, if the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. You can imagine that as human beings, even in the midst of a local assembly, as we begin to, uh, to, to work together and, and fellowship together and get to know each other, our tendency sinfully is to fall into these little uh, feelings of, uh, as exampled here or demonstrated here, inadequacy. Well, I'm not as charismatic as this person. Or I'm not as knowledgeable about the Bible as this person. Or I don't dress as well as this person. Paul says that in in Corinth it was circulating around the, the, the issues of spiritual gift, but we can look more broadly... To go, anything can cause us to feel inadequate in the church. You know, my childhood growing up, I was a child of, like many people, maybe here today, a child of a, of a divorced family. So I grew up as the only child with half-brothers and sisters. My mom and dad, my biological mom and dad only had me and then remarried to two different people, and therefore the home that I grew up in was with my stepmother, my biological father, and two half-siblings. And if I can be transparent with you this morning, there were, there were years upon years that I always felt inadequate and I didn't belong in that household. Now why did I feel that way? Because I'm sinful. It wasn't because they made me feel that way. They didn't lock me up like Cinderella up in the, in, in, in the tower. They loved me equally with, with my brother and sister. They never made me feel as if I was a second-hand citizen. It was my own sinfulness that led me to those feelings of inadequacy. I would even go so far as to say it was Satan himself that wanted me to feel inadequate in that family. Because what does feeling, feelings of inadequacy lead to? Well, in a church setting, it can lead to inactivity. 
If I don't feel like I belong, then I don't want to be involved and be active in the body that God has placed me in. It can lead to bitterness and contempt, which I was full of as a young person before I was a believer in Jesus Christ. Always angry, always feeling like somebody was trying to stab me in the back or or get something better than I had. Feelings of inadequacy can also just lead to discontentment. Listen, when we don't feel like we belong, then we're unhappy with the circumstances. And what we're going to read is that any feelings of inadequacy that Paul is addressing in Corinth is a a sinful discontentment with the sovereign plan and purpose of God who had placed them there and who had given them the very gifts that He ordained for them to have. And finally, and in conjunction with the first one, feelings of inadequacy not just lead to inactivity, but they lead to isolation. Not just inactivity with the body, but just isolation from anybody. We throw pity parties and we feel sorry for ourselves. And Paul is addressing these things. Don't feel inadequate. Don't feel inferior to what God has done in your life. If God has saved you and He has placed you in a body, then you have a purpose. But before he even gets to a theological argument, look at verses 17 and 19. He just speaks very logically. He just says, let's be logical about this, people. If the whole eye, or if the whole body were an eyeball, I think eyeball sounds better there. If the whole body were an eyeball, where would there be any hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? In verse 19, if they were all one member, where would the body be? Paul says very logically, we have to be diverse as a church. We would be completely dysfunctional, and I would even go so far as to say destroyed, because our diversity is how God allows us to function properly. And so this very simple, logical standpoint helps us understand. Calvin says that, he says he sets aside, Paul sets aside a foolish aiming at equality by showing the impossibility of it. He says, if all members says he desire the honor that belongs to the eye, the consequence will be that the whole body will perish, for it is impossible that the body should remain safe and sound if the members have not different functions and a mutual correspondence between them. Hence, equality interferes with the welfare of the body because it produces a confusion that entails present ruin. What madness then, he says, would it be should one member, instead of giving, away to an, giving way to another, conspire for its own ruin and of that body? So Paul deals with this issue of inadequacy very logically. And then three different times, he lays out for us a theological argument. In verse 18, verse 24, and verse 28. <clears throat> Verse 18, but God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he wills. Verse 24, but God so composed the body. Verse 28, God has appointed. All these are 
foundational theological statements that are rooted in the fact that God is ruler and king of overall. And as ruler and king overall, Paul is using this beautiful language of, of setting something in place. If, if it was a military unit, it was the very upper echelon of the leadership deeming who would be the leaders and the authorities in certain ranks over the, over the, uh, the troops and such. To set something in place is to literally place these things in ranked order based upon a grand purpose and design. In verse 24, he uses a different word, to compose, as if you are literally a musical composer, placing every note and every melody all together and in harmony to make something beautiful out of music. All of these ideas confirm the promise of God's sovereign plan for the diverse, unified body. Folks, we are literally serving a God who does not make any mistakes. He is in all ways good and wise in His decisions that have been mapped out from eternity. And we can't understand those things in our finiteness because we are humans God does not have a brain. We are contained to a brain. Do you understand that? He is beyond our understanding. And therefore, we must understand that God is uh, purposeful and and, and going to carry out His plan. Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all the deep. So the church belongs to God. And He places each member in these bodies as He sees fit. He places you. And there's no room for God to waste His time by arguing over the appointment in which God has placed us. We should turn away from such feelings of inadequacy living in discontentment, always worried about what other people are doing, instead of focusing on God gifting us and carrying out His purpose for us. If you'll remember with me the parable of the landowner and the tenants. In Matthew chapter 20, the landowner is finding workers for his field. In the beginning of the day, he goes out to find these workers He agrees with these workers that he will pay them a day's wage, which is called a denarius. And in that beginning of the work day, these men work, and uh, throughout the day he goes and he finds more workers. And the landowner agrees to these workers as well that he would pay them a denarius. And at the end of the day, the workers that started at the early morning begin to see that the workers that have only worked half a day or, or, or even less than they had are getting paid the same amount. And they're like, wait a minute. Those people are getting paid the same that we're getting paid and we've worked longer than them? And one of the most profound statements in that verse is chapter 20, verse 15, where the landowner says, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what I own? That's powerful. Is it not lawful lawful for God to do what He wishes and what He desires with that which He owns and creates? 
Absolutely. So we must trust God's plan and His purposes. We must understand and know and find contentment in what God has done for us as we understand His plan of diversity for the body. The second problem that he dealt with was an attitude of superiority. In verses 20 through 22, we have a second issue. But now there are many members, he says, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Notice the phrases. I have no need of you. Mentioned twice. And also in verse 22, the members of the body which appear to be weaker. These are our assessments of people. These are the way that we evaluate people in the church. In Corinth, it was obvious that there was an elitism that was growing. An elitism that had grown to such a level that these people believed that no one else outside of their group was really necessary, was really needed. But the whole point of this is that in a diverse body that is unified, every member is needed. Every person and every gift is a necessary part of the sovereign and divine plan of God. There is no room for elitism. There is no room for division. It is an attitude that is cancerous to the church of Jesus Christ for a few reasons. It lacks love. If we are segregating ourselves and thinking of ourselves as more important than others, we are not demonstrating the very love of Christ which He demonstrated when He laid down His own life for His enemies. It also rejects God's sovereignty. If we say to someone else, you are not needed, we are literally saying, I have determined, in in spite of what God has planned, I have determined that you are not necessary, even though God determines that you are necessary. It's actually an attack against God's sovereignty. God has placed them here, not you. And therefore, we must understand and value every member of God's people And every gift that's been given by the Holy Spirit, because everyone is necessary by God's plan. And finally, it lacks, or attitudes of elitism elitism leads to factions and not fellowship. We cannot demonstrate Christian love, we cannot have unity, and we cannot enjoy the community that God has blessed us with if we are divided among each other because of different categories that we've created in the church. And so Paul deals with this problem as well. In verses 22 through 24, he says this, On the contrary, it's much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker, notice, appear to be weaker, are necessary. Why do they appear to be weaker? Because God does not think of them as weaker. And those members of the body which seem to be less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable. 
whereas our presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacks it. Now, Paul is stating here the the quite obvious function of the church. Within the church, and in particular within the church that demonstrates gifts, you have some gifts that are more public than other gifts. You can imagine Paul is thinking about such gifts that he's going to deal with in the next chapters like the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. Which, by the way, on the list at the bottom of this chapter, he puts tongues categorically at the bottom. It's the least important gift to the Apostle Paul. And we'll deal with that down the road. But if you you would acknowledge that tongues and that gift in the church was a... And I would say a a displayed gift. It was a presentable gift. People would see it and know it and understand it. It would grab your attention. And then there were other gifts that were less presentable. We can even think of these in relationship to the human body. Like our internal organs. Things that we don't see but have great function. Things that we don't necessarily know exactly what they look like, but they keep us alive and keep us functioning properly. Paul is saying that we will get, he will give, or the Lord will give, proper honor to those less honorable and less presentable members by the way in which they serve and by the way in which they impact the church. So you can imagine and think about... Um, throughout your time in church. If you've ever served in ministry or you've served in leadership, you know the foundational gifts that are being used behind the scenes. The, the, the less presentable but very honored gifts of people that just keep the, the machine rolling. We have these people in our church here today. I'm not going to embarrass people by sharing names, but there are people that keep the church function going throughout our time as a church that never get any recognition or any honor. But the Lord uses them. And so He's being honored, even though they are not stood on the stage and presented with a crown or a robe, they are being used effectively. I couldn't help this week but thinking about our workers with children. You know, as a church, we never want to have the mentality that once all the major church roles are filled, whoever's left will stick you with the kids. I don't want to think that way. Our children deserve more than that, and we would never do such a thing. Instead, the underappreciated role of church ministry are often those who work with children. Where you serve babies and you teach the kids... These are the impressionable minds that soak up the biblical attitudes and the truths from the nursery workers and the kids' teachers. And so if you teach the kids' class, you might not feel like you're in a presentable role, but you are by all means honored by the Lord for doing what you do in teaching our children in foundational and developmental moments the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's very necessary. It's very important. And so Paul confirms them, those that, or corrects them and confirms, 
confirming those who might be uh, not receiving the honor and correcting those who think they're elite by those words. But then in verses 25 through 27, he gives us another promise. He says that all these things should work together in in symmetry and harmony so that the unity of the body leads to purposeful care for one another. After he corrects these issues, showing people that they should be satisfied in the gifts that they've been given and not feeling inferior, that they they should act in love, not being elitist and separating themselves as superior. He says, look, in the end... The unity of the body and its greatest purpose is so that we could care for one another. If you're over here arguing about these different categories and these different feelings you have, then the church will never do what it's intended to do, caring for one another as God's people. That's what he says in verses 25 through 27. So that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Paul deals with two things that I think are pertinent to the ingredients of a healthy and yet diverse unified church. One is suffering together. Paul's point, of course, is that any human ailment... One diseased organ or injured member will always affect the entire body in totality. And this is true of the church. When the Lord assigns our station to a local assembly, we're now joined to that body of Christ so that if suffering comes, God has assigned that suffering not to the individual, but to the body. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. He says, brethren, if any of you is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and therefore fulfill the law of Christ. Now you hear verse 2 a lot, but you're oftentimes hearing verse 2 without the context of verse 1. Because when we suffer together as a church... What Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 6 is we oftentimes suffer together in sin. Because we are one body, when we as individual members fall into sin, the body suffers in your sin. The body is weakened in your sin. Just as much as the disease rages among your organs within. We think that sin is so individual that it only affects, affects us. And that's a lie. Sin weakens the body. And so Paul says, look, our responsibility as a church is to suffer together even in sin. We understand and acknowledge that sin will come and, and there are those in the body, Paul says, who are spiritual. The mature. And what should they do? He doesn't say just acknowledge sin. He doesn't say just pray for the brother or sister. He says restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. This is how we bear one another's burdens. 
That when sin comes within our midst, like a football team heading for the end zone, we are all heading the same direction to help restore a brother or sister in Christ back to the Lord and fellowship with them or to salvation in the Lord. That's our desire. There's no room for that's none of my business in the body of Christ. Although we can feel that way. If you have signed up to be a part of a church and you want people to stay out of your business, you don't need a church. You need a civic club. Civic clubs aren't going to talk to you about the things that offend the holy God that created you. They're just going to talk to you about the things that deal with their organization. But a church deals in spiritual matters. We are not private, we are public because God has called all of us to work together to be sanctified. And in doing so, we suffer together even in, when sin comes to the, to the surface. And what's our, what's our goal? To restore. Not to browbeat, not to attack. He could use a lot of words, but he uses the word restore. It's the same idea in Matthew chapter 18 that our love for Christ and our love for each other wants us, drives us to want to see people repent of their sins and return to a relationship or engage in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Martin Luther says it this way, run unto this person. And reaching out your hand, raise him up, comfort him with sweet words, and embrace him with motherly arms. That's what we're supposed to do in our restoring brothers and sisters who have struggled with or are struggling with sin. Secondly, we suffer together physically. Situational suffering. We grieve as others grieve. When, they're, when they lose jobs or they lose loved ones. This may lead us to sit in solitude with them or pray over them or cook them a meal or clean their house or hold their hand. Whatever they need that, that we should meet so that they can grieve, the church should rise up to do it. In the New Testament, this was demonstrated and exemplified in the early church. We see it in that, uh, Acts chapter 4 and we see it in Acts chapter 11 most particularly. In a one story in particular, uh, the, the area of Judea was under a great famine. And the church and the people of Judea were struggling. And so those in Antioch, a neighboring uh, area that was not affected by the famine, the Bible tells us that they gathered whatever means they could. And they sent a contribution to the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And they did this, they said, sending it in a charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. They gathered whatever necessary materials and they sent it back to Jerusalem because they were suffering. And the, and the idea is, is that we don't suffer alone. We suffer together. We suffer when sin comes, we suffer when situational circumstances attack, and we come together arm in arm, ready to face the battle. But we also care for each other by rejoicing. We don't just rejoice, or we don't just grieve together, we rejoice together. Living life as the body of Christ means we rejoice with one another. 
Promotions at work, children being born, spiritual victories in life. The church must find ways that we can acknowledge and honor those who are rejoicing in whatever circumstances. Paul says this at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. Before he ever dives into these problems, he takes a moment to rejoice and be thankful for this church. He says in verse 4, I thank my God concerning you for the grace of God which is given to you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you are enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is rejoicing with this church, even in its difficulties. He's finding a way to speak well of this body of Christ. To be appreciative, to be thankful, and to rejoice in what God has done in their lives. So as we rejoice with one another, as we suffer with one another, let me challenge you with two things. Number one, be aware. Be aware of the body. And in your awareness, respond toward others. Here's what I mean. We cannot suffer with and rejoice with our brothers and sisters if we are completely clueless about what is going on in our body. The assembling of ourselves together is not just Sunday. It is primarily those, those, that day. But to be vacant and to be absent throughout the week of the lives of one another is to miss out on true community in the body of Christ. We must always be aware of the needs of the body so that we may respond appropriately in a way that honors Christ. We have to be aware. We have tried to, as best we can, develop ways to communicate with one another through technology so that we can keep you informed. So that you can pray and that you can serve. And the elders, I speak for the elders here, and commend you in that. For how well you respond. This week most particular. In the way that you care for those who are suffering and grieving. Secondly, not only be aware and respond toward others, but to be vulnerable and transparent in your own life. The church cannot respond to you if you are a recluse and so private that the church knows nothing of your praises or your pleadings before the Lord. This intimacy in the church rubs some personalities the wrong way, but it is necessary for us to be open about where we struggle. Confess your sins one to another, the the Bible says. As iron sharpens iron... So one brother sharpens another. How can we be engaged in such a work of sanctification if we are so private and individualized in our lives that nobody knows what's going on in our lives? We're not open about our difficulties. We're not open about our struggles. And let's be real, church. Most of the time, we're going to figure it out anyway. Sin always finds a way of exposing itself in our lives. 
We don't want to find out about these things on Facebook. We need to know about it so we can be engaged and helping and caring and loving. Be vulnerable. Let us pray. Let, it, let the church serve as a way to be a, 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 a sense of resource for you. If you're going to lose your job, don't, be, uh, don't allow pride to, to separate you from telling your church. By all means, tell your church so that we can pray for you and maybe be a resource for your family. But you have to be vulnerable. You have to be open and allow us into your life. I'm out of time, but this last section is very simple. Paul gives us another list of the gifts. Verses 28 through 30. Again, Paul says, God appointed in the church. God has specifically and sovereignly placed these people in the church. First, apostles and prophets and teachers and miracles and gifts of healing, helps administrations, various kinds of tongues. What's Paul's point? Well, he gives us this list to say, look, every one of those have a different function. Everyone has a different purpose. All have a necessary function and yet a different function. Because that's how God has designed it. And so he's literally bringing us back to the very simple point that God has designed this body. So let us celebrate it. Let us be thankful for it. And let us do what God has called us to do. Live in unity even in the midst of diversity. Would you pray with me? Father, we come now, uh, Lord, to just give you praise for the body of Christ. And what a better way to remember and to think about the body of Christ than to celebrate.